looking this morning at Genesis 45. This is the great and joyful reunion of Joseph with his brothers. They've already been together, but they don't know it's Joseph. And Joseph's about to reveal himself. And in this passage, we're going to see this beautiful reunion, which is a certainly a shadow and a picture and type of reunion in heaven of the people of God. It's a joyful occasion. It's a wonderful time. And as we come to the Word of God, I love this portion. I love the whole account of Joseph. It's such a wonderful uh, teaching about the ways of God, the, the will of God. But as we come to this passage in particular, we're reminded about what uh, we're sometimes referred to theologically as the Imago Dei. And I want to just kind of give us some introduction before we read it. Imago Dei simply means the image of God, that man is made in the image of God. The fall fatally marred, did not remove, fatally marred the image of God in mankind. And redemption, the work of Christ for us on the cross, redemption brings the Holy Spirit back to us, and now as we walk with God, God is restoring His image in us, His likeness, His ways in us. That's what we're seeing here in this passage. There's been a relationship with Joseph and his brothers, His brothers have sinned against him and the relationship has been broken and marred and now it's being restored. It's being restored rightly. And that's when indeed the image of God is being restored in these brothers and it's being restored in their relationship. And we want to have a sense about that. Every passage of Scripture can be identified in one of two ways. It either describes in some way how we were damaged in the fall Some aspect of sin that came about that marred the image of God in us as a result of the fall. Or it describes to us the work of Christ in restoring the image of God. And so we're going to see a couple of principles set forth this morning in this reading as we come to uh, this reunion. And I want to set them forth for you before we read the passage. There is a sense in which Sin is a lock. Sin becomes a lock that locks out the image of God and redemption in Christ becomes a key that opens those locks and restores the image of God. There are, this morning as we're thinking about the best relationships, because that's what's going to happen here, their relationship is going to be restored in this passage. Joseph's already ready to be restored, but he knows they were not. And so he gives them a little bit of a test, gives them a little bit of an opportunity to kind of come to grips with themselves. And now they're going to be wonderfully and beautifully and honestly and rightly restored with great passion. But as they are, we discover in this passage here six things that work against us in regard to pursuing the best relationships. That can be best relationships, husband and wife. It can be best relationships in the body of Christ. It can be best relationships, parents and children, best relationships at work. We are relational beings because God is relational and he has made us in his image. The six things that deter our best relationships are ignorance. Ignorance of ourselves, ignorance of the person, ignorance of God. Coveting. Coveting. Wanting what somebody else has for ourselves and wanting them not to have it virtually. Guilt. Guilt. Righteous guilt. Things we really have done. Regret. Regret over things that we have done. A failure to understand our purpose as God has created us and a passion about that purpose. And we're going to see that Joseph understands all of those things remarkably in this passage. And we ourselves want to plead with God that as we study His works, His will, and His ways, that that would begin to be written in our hearts, this image of God, that we would not be ignorant, but know the things of God and know ourselves and know others. We would not be covetous, but God-centered. We would not be guilty, but washed in the blood of Christ. We would not be regretting, but trusting. We would not be ambling around without a purpose, but directed on God's purpose and glory And that we would not be cold or dutiful, but delighting and passionate in the worship of God. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? Chapter 45. 
in Genesis. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now... Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. And you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come and do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. And he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Will you pray with me, please? Father God, we do praise you for this, your word. We praise you for the teaching of your word and for the clarity of the examples that you've set before us. Bless us now by Your Spirit to learn of Christ and to learn of the best relationships that are brought by Your Spirit and by obedience to Your will. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. The best relationships is what we're looking at this morning. I indicated to you there are barriers, ignorance, ignorance of yourself, ignorance of God's Word, ignorance of your other, the other person involved or other people involved, coveting, wanting what you don't have because you're not trusting or not God-centered, guilt, 
because you are guilty and have not dealt with it at the foot of the cross. Regret because you've done things that were not right or appropriate and you're seeing consequences from it and failing to grasp that God is sovereign over that. I hope you saw that in the passage. We're going to look at it again here in a few minutes. Joseph does not deny that they did some very wrong things. And he recognizes that God was sovereign over that. Purpose. Joseph understands that their whole family of his father is going to be saved in all of these circumstances. And our purpose is to bring glory to God and to be his children as he's called us out of darkness. And then a passion about this. Joseph does not merely announce these things. He is very passionate about him. There is great weeping in the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers by all sides. This is affecting the heart. Well, in that first area there, ignorance, we see the idea of honesty and objectivity, of knowing who we are and knowing who the other people are. We need to know who we are in regard to weaknesses and strengths. We need to know who we are in regard to weaknesses and strengths and to know who other people are in regard to weaknesses and strengths. That's man to man. It certainly is man to woman. It certainly is parent to child, old to young. We need to study these things and learn as God has revealed all of these things to us, these things to us in the Word and in our families as well. We see the various personalities and ages of life in our church and in our family. We need to learn about these things and understand that we all have a different perspective. If you are weak, then we need to be trembling. In the areas of weakness, we need to be trembling that we are not in sin. We need to be repenting if we are in sin. And we need to be hopeful that God will work in us and through us and in spite of us to bring glory to His name, even in our weaknesses. In our strengths, we need to have some measure of God-glorifying confidence. We need to know what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are. Most of us do. We need to have a God-glorifying confidence. We need to have a humility about our strengths and recognize that indeed everything we have is from the Lord. That includes strengths of character, strengths of planning, strengths of restraint, strengths of mercy, strengths of initiative, strengths of kindness. We need to have a humility about that. And then in everything in regard to strengths, we need to have a teachability. Because our tendency is to be very unteachable in areas where we have some measure of strength already. There needs to be an honesty about us in the overcoming ignorance in order to have the best relationships here. And the brothers are coming to understand who they are. And Joseph is coming to understand who he is. And all of them are coming to understand that God is on the throne of the universe. As these difficulties begin coming the way of the brothers, Joseph has already learned this lesson 22 years earlier, but as these difficulties begin coming the way of the brothers, they say out loud to one another, God has done this. God is doing this. And they are growing in their understanding of sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, sovereignty is one of the dominant themes of the book of Genesis and of the Bible. And we need to understand that ourselves. It's not just a theological issue. They're coming to understand that. And then in regard to, um, in regard to coveting, they are coming to understand more and more that God is able to do whatever He wants to do. And we're going to see that in this passage as well here because the brothers started this whole thing downhill by selling Joseph into slavery. And they did so because they coveted what Joseph had. What did Joseph have? He had favor from God. He had favor from his father. That's all he had in regard to their coveting. He had favor from God and favor from his father. And his brothers were coveting it. They wanted that for themselves rather than joining God in his God-centeredness and letting God be God to give to whomever he wants to whatever he wants to. We need to learn about God's ways. And coveting is a principal part. We move from ignorance right into coveting because one of the biggest things we're ignorant about is God's sovereignty in regard to what He gives to whom He gives. I hope you're aware that there is a passage that speaks about this very thing. A critical passage that everybody should know and meditate on 
I have indicated to you that there are two or three passages that every Christian should be meditating on all the time. One of them is Luke 18. Luke 18 is the tax collector who comes into the back of the church and the Pharisees up front saying, Hey God, I thank you that I'm like I am. And the tax collector is standing afar off, unwilling to lift up his eyes toward heaven, but beating his breast and crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's Luke 18. We need to come to understand that. Matthew 18 is the wonderful parable about forgiveness. The man who was forgiven much, and somebody owed him a little bit, and he turned around and pressed the debt against the one who owed him a little bit after he'd been forgiven millions. We need to keep a perspective about how much we've been forgiven and walk in that sense of joy and thanksgiving and a love of mercy every day. And then Matthew 20. Matthew 20 is the parable of the vineyard workers where Jesus goes out and he hires different people at different times during the day. And at the end of the day, they all think they're going to get the same. But they don't. The ones who are hired early in the day and work all day get a full day's wage. The ones who are hired late in the day and only work an hour or two get a full day's wage. And the ones who are hired early are bitter. They're coveting that these people came in only late in the day and got a full day's wage. And Jesus says to them, Is your eye evil because I am good? Did I give you a full day's wage? Did you work all day? You got justice. We're okay. Can I give good things to this person over here if I want to? Yes, I can. And please understand the wonder of this as Jesus sets forth that. He's saying this is critical to understand who I am, to enjoy me and therefore to enjoy others because the vineyard workers weren't getting along at the end of the payday. Okay? They weren't getting along. Why were they not getting along? Because of ignorance and coveting rather than recognizing this is good that God is like this. This is good that the owner of the vineyard wants to do that. If he wants to do that for that person, God be praised. But look at this. That's in Matthew 20. And here it is in Genesis 45. Genesis 45. Where is it in Genesis 45? We're not talking about the coat of many colors that Joseph got. We're not talking about the favor that Jacob gave Joseph. Right here in the passage we just read, they're getting ready to go back to their father. And what does Joseph do? Joseph gives them all changes of clothes. And then he gives five changes of clothes to Benjamin and 300 pieces of silver. And I don't think he called him off into a closet to do it. I think he gave all of them the changes of clothes and hugged them and wept over them and he was so glad to see them and rejoicing in every one of them. And then he pulls out 300 pieces of silver and just puts it right there on Benjamin and gives him five changes of clothes. And all the other brothers see it and now they're growing in God-likeness, the image of God. And they're learning to say, God be praised. And to say it from the heart. God be praised. Look what Benjamin's getting. Look what I got. Wow, what a great thing that I got. First of all, I got forgiveness and a hug from the governor of Egypt who could have had my head taken off. That's pretty good. And then I got changes of clothes and some great food. And the best farmland in the world, which I'm going to come back to and bring my whole family to. That's all pretty good. And look, Benjamin gets all that and 300 pieces of silver. God be praised. Brothers and sisters, coveting stands severely in the way of the best relationships. Women coveting what men have and men coveting what women have and man to man and parent to child and child to parent. Coveting occurs often in our lives and we need to recognize the wickedness that it is because it slanders the goodness of God and seeks to take away the very scepter of God who decides who gets what. There is another aspect here beyond coveting and ignorance, and that's guilt. Guilt plays a big factor in reconciliation. It plays a big factor in regard to relationships. Are you aware of that? Most marriage counselors who know anything about the Scriptures will tell you this. (laughs) There's a universal thing that happens in marriages, and it usually happens in this pattern. It can go the other way. In marriages, early on, usually the husband will do something really stupid and the wife will remind him about it to the grave. 
I don't know what it is. It could be buying a house. It could be uh, a business venture, uh, some failure. It could be anything. It could be just a blatant sin, something really stupid. And it can go the other way. It can go the other way. The wife can do something really stupid and the husband can, can grab hold of it. And it certainly does. Please understand that both of those things tr- are true, but I'm talking about in a big way. In a big way. That the husband does something stupid, the wife recognizes it and virtually sort of grabs control of the reins, suggesting, wow, I've got to have control of these reins because look what happened when you were in control. Rather than this, please understand this. In this passage, the brothers grabbed the reins and sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph says to them, you sold me into slavery. He says it twice. Look in the passage. He says twice, you sold me into slavery. And then right after, he hasn't even taken a breath after saying, you sold me into slavery. And then he says, God sent me here ahead of you. Do you see that? He's not taking away in any way the sin, the wrongdoing of the other person. Hear that. Hear that. Husbands and wives, your spouses have wronged you in some way. They've done something very foolish, either to you or you suffered as a result. Maybe they did it to somebody else, but you're suffering from it. It's happened. And the God of the universe is sovereign over that. He's sovereign over that. Okay? So here's where we are. We've talked about ignorance and coveting as being critical Barriers. Now we've got this barrier here. And the barrier has to do with guilt and regret. What do you do with the guilt? Joseph reminds them, they, you sold me, he says to them. Okay? He's saying there really was sin. Okay? But he's over it. He's just clarifying. It really was sin. You sold me. What do we do with that? We take our sin and we take it to Christ. We take our sin and the sins of others and we take it to Christ at the foot of the cross. And the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And now that guilt issue is not keeping a barrier because we have no guilt if we are in Christ Jesus. If we are outside of Christ, we carry that guilt to the grave and to the judgment and then therefore to damnation. But if we're in Christ, that guilt is put upon Christ, Christ dies in our place and the guilt is taken away as far as the east is from the west. Now, what about the regret? Guilt, brothers and sisters, you place at the cross of Christ. Regret, you place at the throne of God's sovereignty. Hear that again. Guilt, you place at the cross of Christ and it's taken away. Regret, you place at the throne of the God of the universe and you recognize, as Joseph does in this passage, he says, you sold me. God sent me here ahead of you. You sold me, God sent me. And God is so sovereign, please hear this, He's sovereign over every sin you've ever committed. He's sovereign over every sin your spouse has ever committed. He's sovereign over every sin your child has ever committed. But notice what Joseph's doing here. Joseph is not rushing to one and ignoring the other. He's not. He's not not exaggerating one over the other inappropriately. He's acknowledging sin did occur, but something more important happened. Sin did occur. These aren't equal. Please hear that. Sin and guilt and regret are not equal. There is a sense here of God's sovereignty over this, and it happens in such a way that Joseph has seen it. He's had 22 years to think about this. He's been to the theology school for 22 years. He's recognizing all that God is doing, and he is realizing that God has used every difficulty in his life to God's glory. Now, please hear this. That is a comfort to you. That's encouraging to you. That's helpful to you. Only as long as you understand that God is God-centered. If you think God is man-centered, it's very confusing. Because it's not happening the way you want it to happen. It's not happening the way you want it to happen. But if you understand that God is God-centered... It's a great comfort. Hear this. Every disappointment you've ever had in your life and you continue to carry with you, you've had plans, you've had hopes, you've had dreams, you've had things that you wanted to come to pass, and they didn't. Some of your plans and dreams and hopes were frustrated, and they're still frustrated. And every plan of God is coming to pass. 
You have never, by your sin, you have never thwarted God's will. You never will thwart God's will for you, for your spouse, for your children. Do you hear that? You cannot thwart God's will. There's not a maverick molecule or star in the universe, and there's not a maverick human in the universe. Can you violate the revealed moral will of God? Yes, you can. Failing to walk in thanksgiving is a violation of God's moral will. Okay? Anything other than Christ-exalting, God-honoring, spirit-filled worship and joy and service, anything other than that, is a violation of His moral will. But can you violate His decretive will in which everything is happening just the way it happened? If you have sin in your life and things you've done, and these brothers do, and you've harmed somebody, and they did, they harmed Joseph, okay? If you've got that in your life, the God of the universe was sovereign over that. Please hear what I'm saying. Joseph does not say, you know, God was sovereign over every bit of that, and so it's a great thing that what you did. He actually is saying that in a sense, because, I mean, he's, he's saying God's will is being done, and that's a great thing. But he's acknowledging their sin... At the same time, he's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? What's the cash value for you? For you? Wow! Who among us here this morning doesn't have things they wish they could do over? Who among us, listen to this, doesn't have things they wish somebody had done to them differently? There are lots of things you wish you could do differently, but there's probably a whole lot more things you wish somebody else could do differently to you. Joseph's had 22 years to think about it, and his response is not, Wow, I missed out on so much. I wish I could do all that over again. What he's recognizing is that God has one plan for 11 brothers, and he's got a different plan for Joseph. What does that mean for you? It means that there are people who grow up under God's will with a wonderful mom and dad and everything is beautiful. The father loves the mother and the mother loves the father and the parents love the children and the children actually like each other and they honor their parents. That does happen. It's actually quite rare, but it does happen. And there are all kinds of other things where the father abandons the mother, or the mother abandons the father, or the parents are bad children, they're either harsh or they're too liberal or whatever, and they're not very good parents, and all kinds of challenges occur. The, the children are bickering and complaining, and they come up thinking that's just the way life is, and you're supposed to do that, and they're always, you know, life has dealt me a, a horrible blow, and they grow up in, in elementary school thinking that, and certainly by high school and college they're thinking that, and they go through their whole life thinking of just the negative things, and their critical spirit. God is sovereign over every experience of your life. That's what Joseph has come to learn, and that's what Joseph is trying to communicate here to his brothers. He's trying to help them come to the distinction, the critical distinction, between guilt, you sold me, he says, and regret, God sent me. What does Joseph do with guilt? He puts it at the foot of the cross. What does he do with regret? He puts it at the throne of of God. And how are you doing this morning in that regard? How are you doing this morning in regard to guilt? Have you brought your guilt? Please hear this. Have you brought your guilt to the cross? If you've done so, two things will have occurred. One, you will have experienced some brokenness before God. You will actually have some sense of brokenness about your sin. Two, the Spirit of God will motivate you to take it to whomever you need to take it to and get it right. We're to get it right. As much as we can get it right, we're to get it right. If you rob somebody, give the money back. Whatever you did that's wrong, make it right, God says. All within your power. But there are things you can't make right. There are things you can't make right. And what do you do with those things? You trust in the sovereignty of God. You trust in the sovereignty of God. God was working this thing to His good pleasure. God is working this thing. He's bringing this to pass. Please hear me on this. Not a person here would think that I was mistaken if I said to you, if you were a child, um, I, I grew up with wonderful parents and, and they, they died when I was much older and out of the house. Uh, but I've known people, as you have, 
where they were a child and their parents died. If you're a child and your parent dies, you recognize God did that. I mean, isn't that true? Even if you don't like it. Okay. You, you recognize God, God was in control of that. Remember, that's what we talked about with Ruth. That's why she calls God the Almighty over and over again. She's saying, you're the one who could have stopped this. But you didn't. God is in control. When a child becomes an orphan, we recognize, wow, God, God did that. We fail to grasp that in regard to a father who leaves the home or a mother who leaves the home or a parent who's not a good parent or a brother who wasn't a very good brother or whatever it is. God did that. God gave you the mother or father who wasn't a good mother or father. God gave you the difficulties. God gave you the difficulties that you inflicted upon somebody else. God is using all of those things in the great school of his God-centeredness. In the great school of his God-centeredness. God can use anything and everything. Samson picks up the jawbone of an ass and slays thousands of Philistines. God can use anything to bring his will to pass, and he does. And he's done it in your life. Have you come to grips, to grips with that? Do you, do, can you grasp that mentally and from your heart? Look at uh, verse 3, chapter 45, verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? What is that all about? We're going to come back to it in just a minute. It's this. He's got something bigger in mind. He's going to address the brothers. He's going to address it right here in verses 3 and 4. But before he even addresses it with his brothers, he's got something bigger in mind. It's his father. Do you have something bigger in mind this morning? If you have your heavenly father in mind then the little things that your brothers do against you are insignificant if your father's okay. And our Heavenly Father is okay. He's ruling and reigning, and His will is coming to pass. Our Heavenly Father is okay. He's ruling and reigning, and He's coming to pass. Look at the passage. But His brothers could not answer Him, for they were dismayed in His presence. Why? They are overcome with regret. Wow, look at this. We sold him. We heard his cries. We sold him. We had no good reason to sell him. He was a good brother. He honored his father. He was good to us. He was a diligent son. We had no reason to sell him. We're filled with regret. Look at him now. He's the governor and he's actually being nice to us. They are filled with regret. And they can't even speak. So Joseph has to take the initiative. Please hear that in the best relationships. You have to take the initiative. You have to take the initiative. And there it is. Joseph takes the initiative. Look what he says. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. The first thing he does is he invites them. He's saying it's okay. Now he's going to say twice in the next couple of sentences here, you sold me. But he's saying, come near me. It's, it's okay. Come near me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And then he goes on and explains a little bit more. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here. Three times now he's used the word sent. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. What does Proverbs 16.9 say? Look at this. Boy, everybody needs to hear this. You know, one of the most remarkable things in life is a high school reunion. It's, it's really a, it's a, it's a stunning thing, a high school reunion. Because, or a college reunion can be the same thing. Because when you're at high school, you've just got such plans and such thoughts for yourself. And you've got such plans and thoughts for other people. I mean, you're just thinking so-and-so is just going to you know, become... Bill Gates and so-and-so over here is going to do this. And you just, you've, got, you've got these preconceived notions of what's going to happen. And everybody who has any mileage under them recognizes how differently things turn out. How radically differently things turn out. And please hear this for everybody sitting here in this room. Things haven't stopped turning out. Things haven't stopped turning out. Success is never certain and failure is never final. Things haven't stopped turning out. As long as you're breathing, things haven't stopped turning out. People can surprise you, and then they can surprise you a second time. What does Proverbs 16, 9 say? 
A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The brothers of Joseph had wicked hearts and they sold him into slavery. And the Lord directed their steps without being the author of sin. The Lord directed their steps. I've used this illustration before, but it's a fitting one. When God wanted Joseph in Egypt, he just whistles and their brothers like dogs come running. He just whistles and all he's got to do is just withhold a little bit of his goodness from the brothers and they're right in there with all of their mean-spiritedness and coveting and wickedness. Why are you not a raving lunatic right now in sin? It's because God is restraining you. God is restraining you. His Holy Spirit is making you more and more like Him. And you're actually, if you're saved, you're beginning to enjoy that. You're rejoicing in that. You're delighting in that. Wow, what a great thing that I don't always love the wrong thing and hate the right thing. I, I'm growing a little bit here. I'm not, not perfect by any stretch, but I'm growing. I, I see God's work in me. That's what's going on here. And that's what Proverbs 16.9 says. Listen to it again. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Good or evil hearts, same thing. A man's heart, good or evil, plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is using everything that's ever happened to you. And of course, Romans 8.28, you hopefully know that. Romans 8.28, for God causes all things, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. What a remarkable thing. What an amazing thing that is. I knew a fellow in school when I was in college who was doing very well in college. Uh, and there were lots of students, of course, in college who weren't doing that well. This guy was doing very, very well in college. At the end of his, junior, at the end of his sophomore year in college, his parents just decided to withhold financial support anymore. And all of us who heard about that thought that was awful because he was making good grades and he was a very diligent student. And we knew so many slackers in college. <laughs> we thought, wow, that, that didn't really make sense to us. And that student understood that God was just sovereign. God was, God was just sovereign. And so he dropped out of school for a couple of years and worked and got some money and went back to school. And really never missed a beat. And most of us who heard about it at the time were just stunned by that. God is sovereign. He, he, he does whatever He wants. And He does it right. How about you? All things work together. Have you come to that understanding? Joseph has come to that understanding and he recognizes that the brothers aren't quite where he is. They're on the road. They're not quite where he is. Have you come to that understanding that God is causing all things to work together for good? The only way you can come to that understanding is this, is to understand that God is God-centered. God is God-centered. As long as you're thinking that God's plans for you are that you will be successful and healthy and married with lots of children and grandchildren around you, and that's the only way you can be happy, is in that sense. And those are all great things. Those are wonderful things. But if it's wrapped up in those things, then every time sickness comes your way, every time difficulty comes your way, every time any infraction comes in that, you're thinking this is an invasion on my personal peace. And it's not about your personal peace, it's about the glory of God. And so if God can bring glory to His name by having Paul beat up three times in a row as he goes from Illyrium to uh, whatever it is in Acts chapter 14, those three, Derby and, and Illustria, uh, those three cities, he goes three cities in a row and gets beat up. One of them, they leave him for dead because they, they thought they'd killed him by stoning him. And he gets up, and re please hear this, because I'm telling you, as a preacher, this one really struggle. I struggled with this for years. I still do, but I'm, uh, theologically, I'm coming along a little bit. I just like, wow, he's out there doing the will. He's preaching in the cities, and he's preaching orthodoxy, okay? He's not a heretic. He's preaching the right thing. He's not relying or, 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 or abusing the privileges of a pastor. He's out there preaching from the heart and three cities in a row. It appears that they're like very short spans of time, maybe a week apart or something. Three times in a row, he gets severely beat up. And I'm thinking, why? He's trying to do the right thing. And Paul understands it's not about me and it's not about me being a preacher. 
It's about God being glorified. And if God can be glorified by me being stoned, but not dead, stoned to death, but I'm not dead, and I get up and I, and I walk back in the city, if he can be glorified by the challenges of this life, if he can, if he can somehow be using those stones as they're bouncing off my forehead, if he can be using those stones to polish me as a living stone in the temple of God, then God be praised. If he can get glory from this, God be praised. And how does he die? His head's cut off. What a remarkable thing. What a radically different perspective. Remember we were studying Jeremiah in the evening? And Jeremiah is called as a young man. And what does God say to him as a young man? Jeremiah, you want a wife and children? You're not going to have them. He just tells him flat out. He doesn't tell him how long his ministry is going to be. It's a 40-year ministry. But he tells him up front, you're not going to have children. You're not going to get married. You're not going to have children. He tells him so many challenging things in the uh, prophecies in Jeremiah. that There's one little short chapter in Jeremiah. It's chapter 45. Chapter 45. If you remember, Jeremiah has a secretary. His name is Baruch. Jeremiah is getting all these prophecies in, and, and he's given them and Baruch is writing them down. And Baruch hears all these challenging things that are coming the way for the people of God and he says, well, what about me? What about me? Ask him about me, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah does. And so in that little tiny chapter, God says, I got a message for you, Baruch. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Seeking great things for yourself? Baruch, seek them not. Here's what I'm going to give you, Baruch. Your life. That's the only thing God promises him. I'll give you your life. Are you seeking great things for yourself? If you're seeking great things for yourself, you have long departed from God-centeredness. And God is all about God-centeredness. And so when you get off God's path of God-centeredness, we get into all kinds of trouble and difficulty. And we need to be asking ourselves that this morning. Some of us this morning are greatly, greatly frustrated and deeply troubled because so many of our plans have not come to pass. And we need to be assured and reminded and embracing the reality that every one of God's plans is coming to pass, especially in including His plans for you. His plans for you are coming to pass. I want you to hear this. When I think about God's plans and you think about people you're going to meet in heaven, I think about the thief on the cross. Was God planning that that man be a preacher, that that man be a father and a parent and, and, a, and, a, and a teacher or a pillar in the community, a, a governor? You know, was he planning for that man to be an architect? Was, was that God's plan for the thief on the cross? God's plan for the thief on the cross was the glory of Christ as he, in his dying breath, turns to the thief on the cross and says, this day you will be with me in paradise. And through all the difficulty and all the sin and all the foolishness and everything he did wrong in his life, he ended up getting arrested at the right time and he is right there on the cross next to Jesus when God is ready to bring glory to His Son as His Son is dying and still full of mercy, as His Son is dying and still full of mercy and looking for an object of mercy, and He turns and there's an object of mercy. God's plans from the beginning, please hear this, God's plans from the beginning for the thief on the cross was to be the thief on the cross. He didn't plan for him to be a governor or a school teacher, and then it didn't work out. Well, okay, I'm playing a chess game with this man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do. I'll, I'll put him on the cross. Maybe I can work it out that way. His plan from the beginning was that he would be the thief on the cross. God's plan from the beginning is that you would have some sin and failure in your life. God's plan from the beginning is that other people in your life would have sin and failure that severely affects you that you might understand more and more about the goodness of God and God's ways, that you might understand more and more about His sovereignty, that you might embrace that and rejoice in that. God's plan from the beginning for the thief on the cross was that He would be the thief on the cross. Are you joining God 
in his God-centeredness. You know, I've, I've talked before about the tapestry of God's glory. I love the idea of a tapestry and all these threads that are in it, and they're different kinds of things, and some of them are just kind of black, back, black threads, you know, that kind of make the others stand out in the tapestry. And then, as I was reflecting on that illustration myself, and, and just meditating and, and worshiping God, it crossed my mind, um, I don't know anything about sewing, I know just, just the word. There's something on the sewing machine called the bobbin. I don't know anything about it, but you don't see the bobbin. It's, it's there, it's doing something down there, you don't even see it, okay? It's not even a black thread in the tapestry. But without it, you don't have any sewing, Okay? I just remember my mom, on many occasions, she would say, I'm out of thread, and I would look at the sewing machine, and the spool of thread would be on the top of the sewing machine. I was like, no, you're not. She's like, yes, it's the bobbin that's out, which is that underneath that. Are you willing to be the bobbin in God's tapestry? Not just the black thread and the background on the front of the tapestry. Are you willing to be the bobbin in the back of the tapestry that God's glory might be brought forth? God may have created you for that purpose. And if God created you to be a bobbin, then be the best bobbin to the glory of God. And we need to understand that. That is, brothers and sisters, God-centeredness. That is God-centeredness. And then we need to understand as well, in regard to this, we said this distinction between the regret and guilt. We need to understand that indeed, um, God is sovereign and God is good. Whatever he does is good and right. He's not mean-spirited or unpredictable in the sense of just uh, changing from day to day. He's not that way at all. He's very good. Finally, I said that uh, purpose is a critical thing. I said ignorance, coveting, guilt, regret. Purpose. Failing to grasp our purpose and God's purposes for us. Look at Jeremiah 29. We're studying that in the evening and we'll come to this. But turning your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Most of you are somewhat familiar with this. This is in the midst of great difficulty. Things are falling apart all around Jeremiah and Jerusalem and the temple at the very time this prophecy is being made. And yet God has a purpose. John, excuse me, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Every word we just read applies completely to the thief on the cross. Every word we just read. God is perfectly glorified and at just the right time he moves his heart and the thief seeks God and God allows himself to be found by the thief and God brings glory to his name. I know the plans I have for you, verse 11. I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God is so good, please hear this, God is so good that while he pursues his God-centeredness, and he is, he is slinging out blessings everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes, he's slinging out blessings. And we need to understand that. And so we need to understand the purpose of God in all of these things. And verse 24, back to Genesis, and we'll finish this up. Genesis 45, where we started. Genesis 45. As he sends his brothers home, please understand this. He's um, already demonstrated, Joseph has already demonstrated his sovereignty by giving so much extra to Benjamin. And the brothers are are learning to embrace that. Okay? But look what he says to them. See that you do not become troubled along the way. Verse 24. Chapter 45, verse 24. See that you do not become troubled along the way. What is that all about? It's the reality, brothers and sisters, that we do become troubled. That's the pilgrim's path. They're heading home. They've been restored to Joseph, just like salvation. We've been restored to Joseph, uh, to God, and now they're heading home. That's what we're doing right now. Every believer is heading home. And Joseph exhorts the brothers. What is he saying to them? He's saying, love one another as I have loved you. John 13. That's what he's saying to them. Love one another as I have loved you. And don't let that guilt and regret thing come between you. Don't get into an argument on the way home. 
about who did what and who should have, would have, could have, and all those things. Don't do that. You leave your guilt at the cross, you leave your regret at the throne, and you love one another. And Judah, if you're the one who thought of the idea of selling me into slavery, God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign over that. We need to be doing that. We need to understand that. One last point and I'm done. Very quick point, And that's this. The passion that's in this. Just as you go back and reflect on it here. It says in verse 2, Joseph wept aloud, it says. The brothers were dismayed. They were very concerned over what had taken. They weren't neutral about this. They were very concerned. Uh, verse 5, Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. Um, verse 14, Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Brothers and sisters, we are to be passionate. We are to be affected by the things of God. If you are not given that way, then you need to cry out to God that you would become that way. God would have you to be affected by your own sin, affected by the forgiveness and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would have you to be affected by the goodness of others toward you and to be passionate in your love of mercy. We need to be delighting in that, stirred up over it. Finally, there was a a hymn that I sang when I was a child. I think it's in our hymnal, I Surrender All. All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. Beautiful, beautiful hymn. I commend that hymn to you at some point. But I remember singing it many times. I surrender all, I surrender all. And, and you tend to think that means the past in regard to your sin. But I don't think that it, I don't think we reflect enough. Here's what I'm saying. When we say, I surrender all, I think we mostly are focusing on guilt. And I would encourage us to be mindful of surrendering our will to Him. And therefore, coveting is no longer an issue. Surrendering our will, surrendering our ignorance and learning about the ways of God, surrendering our purpose to God's purposes, surrendering our regret to God's sovereignty. I surrender all. Finally, the back of your hymnal, it says this. Excuse me, the back of your bulletin. Look at the back of your bulletin. Ari Kiev, under the prayer on the back of your bulletin, it's a little quote there from Ari Kiev. Ari Kiev was a Jewish psychologist in the 60s, not a Christian, but... This statement is so critical about the best relationships, whether it's with God, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with your husband, with your wife, with your children, whatever it is, the best relationships are developed in the pursuit of a common goal and not in pursuit of the relationship itself. And then I added the next part. That's not Ari Kiev. That common goal should be joining God in His God-centeredness. Joining God in His God-centeredness. The best relationships are developed in the pursuit of a common goal and not in pursuit of the relationship. When Joseph is being restored to his brothers, he's reminding them God is sovereign over this and he's always asking, is my father well? Is my father well? There's something bigger going on in his heart. Our concern at all times needs to be the glory of God, the pleasure of our Heavenly Father. As we pursue Him, then we will indeed be drawn to one another as we overcome by Christ and the Holy Spirit ignorance coveting, guilt, regret, a failure to understand our purpose, and a lack of passion about joining God in God's God-centeredness. Will you pray with me, please?